Morning. Morning. How we doing, Nuneham? All right, so caffeine's slowly kicking in. Let's try that again. How we doing? There it is. There's our Starbucks run for the morning. Well, it is good to be with you guys again. I always enjoy this opportunity. Uh, my name is Dre, if we haven't met. I have the privilege of being uh, one of the pastors here at Rocky Peak, and I'm excited to dive into the series we've been in for some time now. So if you would do me a favor, you'd open up your program. Inside there is a message note sheet. Now that's a tool to help you follow along, to help you remember anything that might have jumped out at you, or if you just want to draw a picture of me, it's there as well. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get started. Why don't you pray with me? Father, I'm so thankful to be gathering with this church, Lord. I'm thankful that as I was praying over these services earlier in this week, you led me to the end of Matthew's gospel. In chapter 28, you commission your church and you say, go and make disciples. And that's a very famous passage, but what I love is what you say after that. You say, and I will be with you always to the very end of the age. What an amazing way to define our lives as the church, that our King, our Savior, our Jesus is with us always. And so today, Lord, as we talk about the fact that you are limitless in that, I pray that our view of you, whether it's a view, whether we've been walking with you for years or whether we're new to this being your son or daughter, that our view of you, no matter where our starting point is, just grows because of your word today. We love you, Father. Thank you for being our King. In your Son's name, amen. amen. So I want to start off by asking a question this morning. Have you ever been around a kid or a group of children and heard them answer the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now, if you've never had that experience, it's fantastic. It's be, and what makes it so good are their answers. See, a kid, wide-eyed and innocent, never answers anything boring or mundane or like anybody else. They always answer something great. Oh, when I grow up, I want to be a firefighter or a doctor or an astronaut, something along those lines. But also, when you hear kids answering those questions, they often also say something completely fantastical and absurd. They say something that doesn't exist or that we as adults would sit there and go impossible. But here's what I love about kids and answering that question. When they tell you if something that is completely out of left field, like, you know, when I grow up, I want to own the moon or I want to <laughs> I want to make my own ice cream and eat it all day or I want to build a giant robot and fight with it or something. There's no doubt in their mind that they will do it. That's what I love about that. There's no limitations to them. This is going to happen. So think about it. How did you used to answer that question? What was your fantastical answer? See, when I think back, my answer changed throughout the years, but there was a good portion of my life where my answer to that question was, I wanted to build the DeLorean time machine from the Back to the Future movies. <laughs> See... The Back to the Future movies have always been one of my all-time favorite, favorite trilogies. And as a kid, I would watch it over and over. And as I'd watch him go through times, I'd be sitting there going, oh yeah, that could totally happen. And I'm going to be the guy that does it. And I thought I was smart as a kid because not only did I want to build the time machine, I had a plan. See, I realized, hey, if I was going to do this successfully, I probably need to be a scientist, right? 
And so I need to be super smart in the area of science. And so I grew up, like many of you did, in a pre-Google world. And so we had the encyclopedia in our house. And we had these, speci these uh, specific volumes of the encyclopedia, one focused on chemistry and one focused on physics. And so that was my plan. I'm going to take these. I'm going to learn these. This will be easy. I'm going to memorize this. I'm going to become a scientist and go through time. So I took him to school. I remember sitting there. I was all excited, started reading through the book, and it hit me as if it was written in a different language. I'm sitting there going, huh, well, maybe the other one will be easier. No, it wasn't. Now, some of you might be sitting there, well, of course you didn't understand it. You were a kid. Well, at 31 years old, I'm telling you, I wouldn't understand it now. And the reason is that's not part of my wiring. And as a little kid, innocent and wide-eyed, having that experience was probably one of the first times I ever encountered the truth about myself, and that's this, that there are certain areas in life where I have limitations. Now, I share that because that truth doesn't just apply to me, but that applies to all of us. See, as much as we don't like to admit it, and frankly, as much as we try to fight against it, as human beings, we are limited creatures. We have certain limitations that there are lines of we just can't cross. There are things we just can't do. See, now, they range from being individual limitations. See, I can't, I'm not wired to process this heady science, but other people are, and I'm thankful for that. And some of us have in limitations that other people may not. But then there are also limitations that are across the board that are just defining limitations for hu all human beings. Let me give you two very common examples that we like to fight against, aging and dying. <laughs> no matter what we do, no matter what businesses are sprung up, Nobody other than Jesus has successfully stopped the dying problem. Nobody has prevented age. My birthday was in May. I like to joke and say, well, I chose to age again, but the fact of the matter is I had no say in it. It happens. And in fact, if we take a look at our lives, we see that there are times when trials come about. There are times when challenges happen. There are times when we're walking in that metaphorical valley, so to speak, and we look at that situation and we go, this is completely out of my control. There's nothing I can do. No matter my best efforts, nothing seems to be changing. Situations that are unfortunately all too common, such as illness and sickness. We look at a loved one, we look at ourselves that are suffering from something and we go, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing that's changing. We look at things like economic challenges, being laid off, not knowing where the next paycheck is gonna come from. And we sit there and go, I don't know what to do. I'm interviewing, I'm sending out my resume. I don't know what's gonna happen. We look at those loved ones in our lives, whether they're dear friends, children, parents for that matter, and we look at their behavior and despite our best efforts, they're still making poor decisions. And you sit there and go, I don't know what else I could do. See, again, it's a kind of a depressing truth, isn't it? As we look at ourselves just as a race, we are extremely limited people. Now, that's a bummer of a truth, but it causes me to reflect on an amazing, joyful truth, which is while I may be limited, I am so thankful that we serve a Jesus who is not limited. I am so thankful that our Jesus, our King, is anything but. In fact, that's why we titled the message this weekend, Limitless. There in your note sheet, I put a verse and a quote that just express the, limit, the, powerful, the power of Jesus. The first verse from Revelation 19, verse 6 states, Hallelujah, 
for the Lord God Almighty reigns. See, another way we could translate that word almighty is the word omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. That word omnipotent is one of the omnis we see in one of the omnis that are unique characteristics that only God can do, meaning God has no limits. To, ex to express this further, there's a quote I love by A.W. Tozer. It states, to reign, God must have power. And to reign sovereignly, he must have all power. And, what, and that is what omnipotent means, having all power. Since God is also infinite, whatever he has must be without limit. Therefore, God has limitless power. See, our God is not bound by any of the limitations that we are as people. But the reality is, I forget that sometimes. The reality is when life starts to fall apart, when there are those trials, when I don't know, when I'm completely out of control, I want to believe that God is not limited like I am. But there are times when I forget it, and I think that's a common response for us as human beings. But what's incredible is when we dig into the scriptures, we see over and over again that Jesus is reminding us that he is not like us in this way. That when it comes to our limitations, he's anything but. He is limitless. And we're gonna see a great example in our text today. If you're here for the first time, again, welcome to Rocky Peak. If you're newer, I wanna take a couple moments and bring you up to speed. Since about the beginning of the year, we've been in a series called Jesus the King, where we've been going through the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. Now, Mark was one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus, and Mark was a close personal friend of the Apostle Peter. And so what we have in Mark's Gospel is we have an account of Jesus' life and his ministry. And what Mark is writing is Peter's firsthand eyewitness account. Now, the message of Mark can be summed up in this statement. Mark is writing and letting us know that the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior we've been waiting for, has come into time and space in a big way. He is here to rescue his people he is here to right the wrongs. He is here to usher in a brand new era, the beginning of the kingdom of God. I've always liked to phrase it like this. Mark is writing that through Jesus, the kingdom of God is here and that changes everything. Two weeks ago, Pastor Mike started a mini-series that we were calling Category 5. See, Jesus came to usher in this new kingdom of God, and he brought with him kingdom power, something that only God himself could do. And so he would show these, he would sh he would show these acts of power to validate his message. And two weeks ago, we started a series of three miracles, and I'm going to be closing out this morning. And it's, it's these acts of power that are taken to a whole new level, a Category 5 type level. So two weeks ago, Mike walked us through Jesus calming the storm. Last week, we looked at Jesus healing the demoniac who identified himself as legion. And today, we're going to be looking at that third category five level, uh, level miracle. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you've got your apps, turn them on. We're going to be in the fifth chapter of Mark's gospel. There in your note sheet, there is a section titled, The Story of Bleeding Woman and a Dead Girl. We're going to be starting in the 21st verse of chapter five. So as you're getting there, let me set up a little bit of context for what, we're, uh, what, what our text is going to sh share with us this morning. Remember, Jesus uh, last week had healed the demoniac, had sent the demons into the herd of pigs, and as Mike put it, the pigs committed mass pig suicide. And what was the reaction of the people? They freaked out. And they said, Jesus, can you leave? 
Can you get out of here? Because we don't know what to do with you. So Jesus was on the east side of this lake, and now he's going to be going over to the west side. And it says that he's surrounded by crowds. Now, we don't know if the crowds were there waiting for him or if the crowds heard as soon as he came in. It's possible that he came back near Capernaum, which was a home base. And on this side, on the west side, Jesus was a celebrity in the pre-Facebook, Twitter world. People were spreading the word, and he attracted crowds. Now, there were, I believe, some people in the crowd that wanted to come and hear the message of the kingdom, but you also had a lot of looky-loos. Have you noticed in human nature that if you see a crowd forming, you don't need to know what's in the middle of the crowd to want to see, to want to join it? But then you had also heard people that had heard that, hey, this guy Jesus does tricks. This guy Jesus is kind of like a circus, like a Ringling Brothers. Let's see what he'll do. I don't know what to do with that. And so these people are coming to see him. Now, we're going to encounter two types of people on very different sides of the economic spectrum. The first is we're told his name is Jairus. He's going to be approaching Jesus, and Mark describes him as a synagogue ruler. Now, it was common in this time that the synagogues were not run by a trained professional class, but they were actually run by lay people in the congregation. If you were a synagogue ruler, your responsibilities included things such as overseeing the worship service, the building maintenance, but what it also meant was if you were chosen to be a synagogue leader, that was a position of prominence. That means you were held in high esteem by your congregation and your community, and that meant you were also economically well off. You were like one of the best of the best. And so the synagogue ruler Jairus is going to come to Jesus. We don't know how he had heard of Jesus necessarily. Obviously, Jesus was a celebrity. But also, being a synagogue ruler, it's no doubt he came in contact with the Pharisees. It's no doubt that he had heard negative accounts of Jesus. But yet, Jairus comes because he has a problem. His 12-year-old daughter is dying. In fact, in the original language, we can translate the phrase he uses saying that she's at death's door. And so, for whatever reason, he comes to Jesus with a desperate faith and goes, can you heal my daughter? And so, that's where we're going to be starting today. So at verse 21 of chapter 5, when Jesus had again crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. Now, I don't know a lot about Jairus up to this point, but here's something I really love about him. He's a dad that's willing to do anything for his daughter. And here's what I mean by that. See, he was a prominent man. There were a lot of social norms about what you did and didn't do. And he jettisoned all semblance of dignity, of rules, of social norms. And he fell at Jesus' feet and pleaded and begged, especially as a synagogue ruler, knowing that the religious leaders at the time did not like this guy, going, can you please help my daughter? It's Father's Day. I think about that as a father myself, and you parents in here, you would know there's nothing we wouldn't do for our kids. And here he is with a desperate faith, but it's a faith that you can do something. Would you please help? I have to believe that we don't know how long Jairus' daughter had been sick, but I have to believe that he had tried other things. I have to believe they had tried other methods. I have to believe that he's hit limitations. 
because obviously his daughter was still dying, and here he is with Jesus. And what is Jesus' response? He goes. He goes with them, and they start going to her house. But here's the awesome thing. Jairus, probably for the first time in a while, depending on how long his daughter was sick, had hope. But you got to imagine a giant clock is ticking in his mind, like in the show 24 when you just hear it counting down, because he's sitting there going, my daughter is dying. And so if it was me, I would be still worried. I have hope that Jesus Jesus is coming, but I would still be worried that we're not going to make it on time. Now, they head off to Jairus' house, and this is where we're going to meet our second encounter today. And we're not told her name, but we're told that she is a woman on the complete opposite side of the social and economic spectrum. We're told that she is a woman that had been suffering from a condition that has caused her to continually bleed for 12 years. Now, you need to understand something about this. Her, Mark goes into vivid details, we'll see, but her existence was wretched, It was a torturous existence because Mark tells us that she spent every dime she had seeking out cures and medicines, trying everything, and nothing helps. Mark accounts that she got worse instead of better. And not only that, but she was a social outcast. See, in Jewish ceremonial laws, Blood, having contact with blood, made you unclean. The fact that she was continually bleeding for 12 years meant that she couldn't touch anyone or be touched without that person becoming unclean. So she was shunned. She was an outcast, very akin to the lepers we come across in the Gospels. And so if you look at it in terms of where her place is in society, there's not much lower she can go. She's desperate. She's looking for a cure. And she hears of Jesus. And again, we don't know how she first hears of Jesus, but she has an intense belief that Jesus can cure her. And in fact, her belief is mixed with a little bit of superstition because we're going to see that her, she has a plan. And her plan is, you know what? If only I could touch his clothes because if I could touch his clothes, then I will be healed. See, it was a common superstitious belief at the time that a ruler, a person of power, that they somehow could transmit their power through their clothes. And she knew what the ceremonial laws meant. She knew that she was unclean and there would be huge consequences if she had touched this teacher. And so she's going, hey, there's a crowd. Maybe I could slip in, grab his cloak, hopefully receive some type of power and slip away anonymously. So that's the plan. So let's see what happens. Verse 25, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from suffering. See, what I love in this picture right here is it's not a common response that a lot of us have gotten at the doctor office, a doctor's office where he goes, hey, you just need to do this and you're gradually going to get better. She didn't gradually get better. She instantly, physically felt this burden lift off. She felt that her body had been put right. Can you imagine the joy in her head? Can you imagine that sense of relief going, oh my goodness. But then the situation turns a little bit. Verse 30, at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you see the people crowding against you his disciples answered and yet you can ask who touched me 
But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. See, Jesus felt the power leave him, and this isn't, doesn't imply that Jesus lost control of his power. See, God is always in control of his power. This woman was healed as an act of grace, but we're going to see Jesus is going to use her as a model for the kingdom. And we're going to see something amazing, but Jesus stops, and he goes, well, who touched me? And do you see the response of the disciples? They told Jesus, that's a stupid question. They're like, people are crowding around us. Who's touching you? Everyone's touching you. Are you kidding me, Jesus? Now, it's easy for us to come down on the disciples because we sit there and go, how do you treat Jesus like this? But I'm willing to bet if I was there, I would be no better because I'm a sinful, naive person as well. But also, what were the disciples probably frustrated with? They understood the, the situation with Jairus. They understood that their 24 o'clock was counting down. They're like, we have a mission. We need to get here. And you're wondering who touched you? But Jesus didn't stop and he kept looking. Now put yourself back in the shoes of that woman. She had a plan, it worked. She wanted to slip out anonymously because she broke all these ceremonial laws and now the teacher stopped and is looking for her. You gotta imagine that her heart has sunk because she's sitting, because he's like, well, who touched me? And she's sitting there probably going, if they find out that it was me, I, there's going to be consequences. This is not going to work well. Now, we're going to see what she chooses to do. Again, just being human with you guys, if this was me, I would have ran. There's a crowd. I would have pointed at somebody else, but like it was him and just took and taken <laughs> off. But she's built of some better stuff than I am because we see her response. 33, then the woman, knowing what had happened, came to her, what had happened to her, excuse me, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. She stepped up and said, I did it. She fell at Jesus' feet and it said that she was trembling with fear because she was expecting rebuke and consequences. But that was never Jesus' intent. See, Jesus was asking for who touched him because he's going to model what Jesus wants to do to all his children and that's make personal contact. That's establish that personal relationship that he values. And we see this in what he says next in verse 34. He said to her, daughter, just pause right there. This woman had been an outcast, had been shunned for years. She had no one. And here is the son of God calling her family. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. See, Jesus was looking for her to establish that she now has new life. See, Jesus needed to refocus her. See, she believed in, in him, but mixed in with a little bit of superstition. See, Jesus needed to be clear about something. It wasn't the superstition that saved you, it was me. Now, a quick sidebar about that, depending on how you grew up and what your religious traditions were growing up, sometimes we put a lot of value into things or habits. And maybe they have their place at times, but Jesus is always refocusing us as Christ followers onto him above anything else. And so he takes her and he makes it very clear, your faith in Jesus is what healed you. What I love is the Greek word that's been translated as healed pops up a few times in the New Testament. And then when it pops up, it's not talking necessarily about physical healing. This Greek word means spiritual healing. 
He's basically saying, your faith has saved you. Salvation, because what we see to Jesus, there was a bigger issue than just physical, than just, than just healing physically. The bigger issue was always the eternal salvation. He just saved her from damnation. When he says, go in peace, he's not saying simply, hey, go and don't worry internally anymore. What he means by his benediction is you now live with a right relationship with God. Go and live in the freedom of that. You've been restored. It makes me think back if you were with us a couple of months ago in chapter two when the paralytic, his friends, remember that these are great friends. They dug a hole in the roof, brought the paralytic to Jesus for healing. And what's the first thing Jesus does? He doesn't heal him physically at first. He says, your sins are forgiven because he's saying there's a bigger problem and that's sin. And the solution to sin is a right relationship with Jesus. And so he focused her, and this is awesome. This is an amazing encounter. You're looking at this, and we're feeling that emotion going, wow, this is awesome, unless you're Jairus. Remember him? Because if you're Jairus now, what are you thinking? We just delayed. I don't have time to spare. Again, that clock is ticking. When I was talking with my wife about this passage earlier, she just put it bluntly as I would as well, as parents ourselves, she said, I would be so ticked off if I was Jairus because why did we stop? If Jesus was an emergency room doctor and he had these two women, who would you do? Logic dictates who would you treat first? You would think the woman had time, but that's not what Jesus did. And unfortunately, during this encounter, People came from Jairus' house to deliver the message he was dreading. Your daughter is dead. And in that moment, I'm sure that Jairus was thinking this was a game over situation. There are many times where we face trials and we sit there and go, game over, do we not? Because we've hit our limits. There's absolutely nothing else we can do. In any of the examples we've talked about, and this is what Jairus is probably feeling, it's over despair. Maybe Jesus could have helped beforehand, but the message being sent, because they tell him, hey, your daughter is dead. There's no need to bother the teacher anymore. So the message they are saying is, hey, not even Jesus can do anything now because no one can do this. And then this is when Jesus expresses very clearly how we have the wrong image of him and just how truly limitless he is. So let's keep reading. Going back to verse 34, he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother, bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring I love that. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. If you have your Bible and a writing implement handy, if you have an app that has the ability to highlight, could you just put a giant box around that phrase? Because we're going to be coming, that's the foundation for what we're talking about this morning, but we need to remember that phrase, don't be afraid, just believe. See, Jesus made two truths out of that statement. See, the first truth that he's teaching us through that statement is, even though this didn't go according to your timetable, I am still in control. And the second thing he's asking Jairus through that he's going, Jairus, I'm asking you to believe in a limitless God. 
See, Jairus in this situation has a choice to make. In fact, it's a choice that we have to make in those situations, and that's this. Do I believe only in what my circumstances allow? Another way of saying that is, do I believe only in what I can see, or do I believe in the Jesus who has promised me that he is limitless? Now, we have that choice to make, and it's not always an easy choice. But again, here are the of Jesus. See, he doesn't say, he doesn't say, hey, believe in my power, believe in my acts. That's part of it. But what does he say? Believe in me. And what does Jairus do? He goes. He believes in Jesus. I don't know how long the rest of the walk was to his house. And I'm always fascinated by what's going on in Jairus' head. Has this not been an emotional roller coaster of a day? And I'm sitting there, sitting like, is he sitting there going, okay, am I crazy? Like, my daughter's dead. I thought he could do something. Maybe he could cure her. He says he's, it's not over, but come on, she's dead. How do I explain this to my wife? What do I say with, to other people? I don't know what's going on. And so what Jesus ends up doing is that they go to Jairus, and he dismisses those crowds that have been following him. And in fact, he dismisses the majority of his disciples. He keeps his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He takes Jairus, and they go to Jairus' house. Now, however long it took him to get there, it was long enough for the funeral procession, for the funeral procession, Proceedings to start. See, what's going to happen is Jesus is going to encounter, as Mark puts it, a, a big commotion at Jairus' house. Because it was big business in this culture to hire professional mourners. It was considered a huge social no-no to have a death in the family and not have a good amount of people mourning. And not just mourning, but mourning loudly. Like making a big spectacle. Even the poorest person was expected to have some type of professional mourning. So Jairus being way out, he's having like a Cirque du Soleil style of mourning as he goes in. Because Jesus is going to walk in and there's going to be people playing instruments, dramatically wailing, doing these rhythmic things. Just a lot of noise. And then Jesus is going to say something that's going to stop everybody in their tracks, get their intention, and instead of going, wow, that's awesome, they're going to straight laugh at him. So let's see. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and he said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. So obviously we see how superficial their emotions were. They were just hired to do a job. But they're also the realists. Would you not say that? Because Jesus is going, hey, she's not dead, she's asleep. And the children are going, are you kidding me? She's dead. Now, why would Jesus say that? She's dead. Luke's gospel backs it up and Jesus knows that she's dead. We're not dealing with a prince's bride, she's only mostly dead situation. <laughs> We're dealing with that she is straight dead. And here's the point Jesus is making. See, Jesus is limitless, meaning there's nothing he can do. And here's the key point in his statement. To Jesus, even something as powerful as death, the ultimate human limitation, is simply a sleeping to him. And so we go on. After he put them all out, so he kicks everybody out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. 
Mark translates the Aramaic for his Gentile readers. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now we see this amazing show of power and I want to dig a little bit more to show you the care and the tenderness with which Jesus approaches his people. Now Mark translates that Aramaic phrase Talitha kum for us, but let's dig a little bit more into that. See the first word, Talitha literally does mean little girl, but the connotations of it is that it's a term of endearment or a pet name. So to put it in our colloquial language, one of the best words we can use, the, to, 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 we can insert there would be the word honey like a parent gently refers to a daughter as honey. So think about the power of Jesus. He's facing death itself, as I have already stated, the ultimate human limitation. And what does he do? It's not this giant show of lightning. It's not him sweating and hoping like you would see at the end of a dramatic movie. He gently grabs her by the hand and says, honey, it's time to get up. That's all it took. And she does immediately. And then Jesus tells him, don't tell anybody. That's not an uncommon phrase because you sit there and go, well, why wouldn't he want people to know? And the thing is, Jesus was here to share a message. But as it is human nature, often with these miracles, people just wanted to see the sideshow. And he was trying to avoid that. But also in this particular miracle, I speculate as well that his conquering over death would have a bigger context after his own resurrection. But then the final picture that we see is she gets up and he says, don't tell anybody and give her something to eat. That's such a quick, that's such a quick line, but it's so profound that our God not only cares about our giant needs, such as resurrecting us from death, he did that spiritually for us as Christ followers, but he also cares about our day-to-day needs, such as give her something to eat. Our Jesus cares. And so how do we sum up the teaching from this passage was pretty simple. As Christ followers, we need to grow in our faith. We need to grow in our view of Jesus to the point that we need to acknowledge that there are times in our lives that we place limits on a limitless God. And when we acknowledge that, then we start taking steps to remove those limits because thankfully, Jesus is not limited by the same things that we are. See, another way to look at it is this. And I've been using the word limits a lot, but often we place limits when we lose trust in God. Because think about it, in any relationship we have, when we lose trust, what's created is distance. If you lose trust in any type of relationship, there's all of a sudden a distance. Things feel weird and it hampers you from wanting to continue to engage. Now, sometimes we work through that and we become better, but often we have a, often when that happens with God, these limitations equal to broken trust because we experience these limitations as we go to God for something. As we go to God for a need, for a request, And what we perceive as inactivity makes us wonder, well, does he just not want to? Can he not do this? And it starts in our heads hurting our trust. And the enemy jumps all over that because the enemy wants nothing more than to see an opportunity to create distance and to push us farther and farther away. 
Now, what we see in this passage is an example that Jesus gives us through Jairus and the woman, through that household and through himself, on that even in those times of trial, even in those times of uncertainty, that we can still deepen our trust in Jesus, even if we don't know what the outcome of the situation is going to be. Now, as we talk about this, I want to focus on one particular limitation that we tend to put on Jesus. And because this is a big one that tends to be a foundation for a lot of broken trust, it comes out of our scripture. So they're on your note sheets. You're going to see a section titled, Placing Limits, How We Lose Trust. And your fill-in is this. We doubt God when his timing is different. We doubt God when his timing is different. It's a rare thing that we come to God with an urgent request and we don't want it to be filled in the immediate, right? And oftentimes when we come in those urgent requests, we're asking for good, great things. We're asking for things like the woman and Jairus did. Hey, we want some healing. We want some provision. We come to God often in that urgency. God, please. And when we come to God often, we believe that he's capable of doing the what? But where these limitations start to come, where this doubt, where this lack of, where this broken trust in our end starts to happen is in the when. See, we want this fulfilled now because this is going on. This is an urgent matter. And when it seems like Jesus is not fulfilling it in the way, in, in, when we want it to, it really tends to rock our faith and his ability to do it in the first place. To do a common example that we've touched on already over the last couple of years, take the many of you that have been in this room that have struggled with economics and finances over the last couple of years. Take the fact that for many of you, it wasn't in your control to be laid off, but you were. And you're sitting here as you're watching the bills pile up. You got to pay for school for your kids. You got to pay the mortgages. You got to pay school loans down, whatever it may be. And you're seeing this pile up and you're going to God. You're going, God, like, I, I don't know how I'm going to provide. I don't know if we're going to keep our house. I don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. They keep calling me. I don't know what we're going to do. Can you please provide? I need a job or we need just money. We need something. And you pray and you believe and it feels like nothing. And you're sitting there going, God, maybe you didn't hear me. I need help. Like, I've got other people praying for me too. Please, I need this now. And when the timing is different, we sit there and we struggle because we're going, am I not asking for a good thing? My family's depending on me. Am I not asking for a good thing? This person is sick. Am I not asking for a good thing? I want them to come to know Jesus. I, I don't understand. It's been my experience just as a Christ follower and working as a pastor at a church for over a decade now, that this is one of the most difficult struggles for a Christ follower, is when our timing is different than God's. This is really tough, especially when you've been pleading for something for a significant length of time. Again, given that it's Father's Day, parents that are pleading for the salvation of their kids for years and years, that is a tough, tough place. This is a tough struggle. And it leads to honest questions like, why is God not moving? Is it because he can't? Or is it because he won't? And there have been times in my life, and I'm sure there have been times in your lives as well, that we sum up with this, 
is God just not for me? Is he not for his people? See, I thought he was. I've been taught that he is, but if he was for me, then why isn't this happening? Why am I not getting this? Why is he not providing in this? If you've been there or you are there, the amazing thing about Jesus is these game over situations don't apply to him. But the question is, what do we do in those situations? What do we do in those heartbreaks and those valleys? What do we do in that struggle? Well, from our text today, we see that example that we need to remember, we need to reflect, and we need to rest in Jesus' words to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. What was Jesus saying? Believe in who? Him. The sum totality of Jesus, believe in his promises, his power, his love, and his truth. And all that can be summed up in the word of the day, his limitless power. And here's why this is important. My narcissism does not like to admit this, but because I'm a limited person, another way of saying that is I'm a finite being. And by being a finite being, that means I have limitations. And one of the biggest limitations that we all have as a finite being is that when it comes to the story of our lives, we can only see such a small picture. I am literally contained to what I can see directly in front of me. See, in my head, like many of you do, I have plans of what the rest of the day is going to look like. In my head, my plan is I'm going to finish this service, I'm going to teach the next service, I'm going to go get some in and out get a couple of burgers yes a couple of burgers and in and out i'm gonna go home i'm gonna hang out with my wife and my son i'm gonna throw on hulu and watch i love lucy which is my all-time favorite show and i always have it playing in the background of my house my wife is so annoyed by this and i'm gonna wash it all down with a healthy box of donuts that's that's my plan that's what i'm gonna do today now, it's fairly likely, it's Father's Day, I'm milking this for all it's worth. <laughs> but here's the truth. That's my plan, and it's likely that I'll get to achieve it, but I have absolutely no guarantee. The only thing I know for sure is what's right in front of me. I have no idea, truly, what's going to happen in the next moment. And the reality is I'm a finite being, but Jesus, on the other hand, is infinite. And the thing that we need to hold on to, this truth of why he can say, don't be afraid, just believe, is while I can only see this little sliver right in front of me, our Jesus sees the entire picture. He sees, as I've put it over the years, the finish line, and he knows what he's doing. So often, what I perceive as inactivity, the reality, and it doesn't make it any easier, understand this, but the reality is there's parts of the puzzle I don't have. There's things I don't see, and he sees the whole picture, and it's why he focuses me, us on him rather than the answers, because at times, we may not get the answers. At times, we may not get them for a while, but what Jesus is saying, but trust me because I am for you. I died for you. I rose again for you. That cross and an empty tomb is a guarantee that our God is for us and he's for his kingdom and he's for the good of his people. But what's tough is when we can't see that. See, a pastor a couple years ago, to paraphrase something I heard him say, he said, often in those times of struggle when our timetables don't line up with Jesus, what we want, what we need, our urgency, often we end up wanting that much more than we actually want the presence of Jesus. 
And so we see this with Jairus, we see this with the bleeding woman. Again, Jesus refocused them on him. Trust me, don't be afraid, just believe. It makes me think of Job in the Old Testament. And the reason it makes me think of Job is because this is tough, my friends. This is really tough and especially sometimes I will go to Jesus with an urgent need and he sees the whole picture and as hard as it is for me to even say this phrase, sometimes the thing I want the most may not be the thing that is best for the kingdom or myself. And that is difficult. That is really difficult. And like I said, it reminds me of Job. If you're not familiar, let me give you a quick crash course in Job from the Old Testament. See, Job lost everything. He lost his fortune, his business, and his family. He spends a majority of the book lamenting, which I would as well, sitting there and asking the question, why did this happen? Why? See, what Job doesn't know is at the beginning of the book of Job, we are given a window into a conversation that God had with Satan. And Satan going, you know why Job likes you? Because he's got a sweet life. If you took everything away from him, you know what would happen? He would hate you. And God knowing Job, but God also knowing his own power, tells the devil very well. Devil took everything from Job. Job laments, why is this happening? And we get near the end of the book, in the last couple chapters, God makes his presence known to Job. And in those chapters, what is God telling Job? I have this under control. And you know what's interesting? Job spent the majority of the book going, why? I just want to know why. Why did I lose everything? And in the presence of God, do you know what the one thing he doesn't ask? Why? He doesn't care. In Job 42, too, this isn't in your note sheet, he says, I know you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Job was restored to his things, but here's what's crazy to me. On this side of heaven, Job never knew that the Lord used his pain to shame the enemy. There's a big picture we don't see. But Jesus continually tells us, even though you don't see it, trust in the one that does. I am for you. I know what I'm doing, and I am building our kingdom. There in your note sheets, I put a quote by Tim Keller, he's a brilliant author and one of my favorite thinkers. And he writes, God's sense of timing will confound ours. His grace rarely operates according to our schedule. When Jesus looks at Jairus and says, trust me, be patient. In effect, he's looking over Jairus' head at all of us and saying, remember how when I calmed the storm, I showed you that my grace and love are compatible with going through storms, though you may not think so. Well, now I'm telling you that my grace and love are compatible with what seems to you to be unconscionable delays. That's a good quote. So let's apply this. How do we start trusting Jesus in those times where we just feel like the timetable is different or we feel like we're losing that trust? There in your note sheet, there's a section titled Removing the Limits, Remembering that God is for us. And that fill-in, is simple yet profound. Seek God's presence. Jesus focused both our characters today on himself. Again, going back to Job, what changed the game for Job was the presence of God itself. 
There in your note sheets, a couple weeks ago as we talked about the storm, we referenced this verse. I wanted to bring it back because it applies, and I used a different translation from the New Living Translation. Philippians 4, 6-7 states, Don't worry about anything. And said, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and mind as you live in Christ Jesus. Understand the message of this scripture. One of the areas where we're going to continually hit a ceiling as limited beings is we think it's within our power to understand everything. We think it's within our power to understand how everything happens, and it's not. But it is within our powers to understand Jesus, the one that understands everything. And so I may not always understand why this trial is happening, why I'm going through this valley or this fire, but I do understand that my Jesus is with me. I do understand the God who is limitless, walking with me, going, I see the bigger picture. I've got you by the hand, and I've promised you that I will be with you always. And so how do we apply this? There's two things we need to do. We need to take two action steps because if you look back to the Philippian verse, it says that it will guard us. God's peace will guard us. Will guard us from what? Will the enemy lying to us like he loves to do and saying God is not for you. And so how do we counter those lies? Is we counter those lies with truth and there's two action steps we can take and we can go and they go hand in hand and they also work separately. Well, the first villain is this, speak. This one can seem kind of easy, But the first step is we go to God and we say, God, this is what I want. God, this is what I feel like I need. God, I need your provision in this area. Now that part is what seems like the easy part. The other half of speaking is what I think we have a problem with and that's what I wanna encourage us to do to grow in this area of trust. We need to have honest conversation with Jesus. And that means when I'm frustrated and upset and angry with him about his timetable, I need to go to him with that. See, if we've grown up in church, for some reason, sometimes we believe this myth that telling God what we honestly feel is inappropriate. Yet we forget that the Psalms have numerous people yelling at God going, I can't believe you're ruining my life. Have you abandoned me? Have you forgotten me? That wasn't a late edit that surprised God going, what did you do? Why did God put the Psalms in there? Because he gave us an example for us to follow. The awesome thing is God is not shaken by our emotions. But when we go to the one, sometimes it feels like we talk to everyone except the one person that could actually do something about it. And it may not even still be giving us what we want, but when we get it out, we are in a position where we can hear clear. And that leads me to the second point. See, we speak, but we also need to listen. We really like to be the ones that do all the talking. That's not how a healthy relationship works. But oftentimes, it's how we approach God. And so in our times of prayer, We need to be intentional that we are carving out time to listen. I read a book once that put it this way, and I do this often in my prayer time, where I would just simply, I'll talk to God, and then I'll simply say the phrase, Lord, here I am. And then I shut up. But you know what's interesting is the way the Lord speaks is varied to people. See, sometimes people are going, well, am I expecting an audible voice? Maybe. Sometimes the Lord may bring up, 
an experience or something he's, to, he's given you in the past. Sometimes he might bring a scripture to mind and often even a scripture you didn't realize you had memorized. Sometimes he might bring up a lyric from a worship song or something or sometimes he just might bring the silence of peace. See, the prophet Elijah at one point prayed to die and the Lord responded by encouraging him by speaking through a breeze. So in times of prayer, we want to carve out these times to listen, but there's another powerful way that we can listen to the Lord, and that's by being in His Word. See, the Bible is not an ordinary book. The Bible is the living and active Word of God, and when the Lord is trying to speak, it's amazing. We have His Word, and so we can go and hear Him speak to us, and many of you have had that experience that when you are in the Word, that a verse just jumps out and hits you, that there is an encouragement. The Lord is constantly getting our attention through the word and it is powerful and that is a form of listening we can do that in our prayer times we can do that in other settings in fact because of a lot of these free apps and downloads so we can even listen to the word as we drive I do that often I have the word playing as I'm driving in the morning and the Lord is speaking through it how do we learn to trust Jesus in those times when our timetable is different we speak but we listen as well and what happens in the situations is our circumstances may not change, but we will hear loudly the Lord telling us, don't be afraid, but believe in me. I'm going to invite our worship team to come out and we're going to go into a time of worship. And as we do this time, let me encourage you, let this be a time where you listen to the Lord. See, for some of you, maybe as you look at the lyrics that we're going to be singing, maybe they, you need to make them your declaration. You need to it's like sing it loud and sing it proud, and you need to say, Jesus, this is what I believe. You are bigger than this. Maybe some of you, as, you're, as we're singing, maybe you just need to sit there and close your eyes, listen to these words, and let the Holy Spirit just wash over you through it. As we go into this time, you're also going to see the ushers are going to come forward. We're going to receive our gifts and offering, just another part of this worship experience. But I'm going to ask you, why don't we stand together as a church, and I'm going to pray for us as we head into this time. Father God, as we head into this time where we sing these words, Lord, we thank you that while we are limited people, you are limitless we are thankful for that truth and the fact that that truth is never changing forever and ever. You are limitless. You are God, Lord. And for whatever the valleys we are in right now, I pray your words over myself and this congregation, Lord, don't, don't fear, but believe in Jesus. Father, as we take these gifts, as we receive these gifts and offerings, Lord, we commit them to you to do as you will. This is your church and we are obedient to that. In your son's name we pray, amen. Don't be afraid. Amen. Just believe in Jesus, amen? Yes. You know, in your notes, I'd quoted Tim Keller, and I want to leave you with another thought. As he was talking about this encounter, specifically as he writes about how Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead by taking her from the hand, he writes, why would we want to hurry someone this powerful and this loving who treats us this tenderly? Why would we be impatient with somebody like this? Jesus holds us by the hand and brings us through the greatest darkness. Are you trying to hurry, Jesus? Are you impatient with the waiting? Let him take you by the hand. Let him do what he wants to do. He loves you completely. He knows what he's doing. And soon 
it will be time to wake up. If you'd, if you'd like to pray with somebody before you leave this place, over on that side of the auditorium, there's a prayer corner. There's some amazing men and women there that would love to be praying with you. Next week, we really hope that you can join us. Hope that you can invite somebody to come and join us as well next week. We're going to see next week that despite these Category 5 miracles, that there's still people that are slow to believe in Jesus and his message. And we're going to see that clearly Jesus is going to go back to his hometown where he grew up, and he's going to face rejection. And so next week, that raises the question of what do we do as Christ followers in the face of rejection, especially rejection because of Jesus? So as you go this week, may you be living in the freedom of the truth that your God is king, he has healed you, and he's going to say it's going to be time to get up. Have a great week. Woo!